Up next on Episode 80 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss GitHub, the value of formal code documentation, and how to decide what features belong in the next version of your software from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. I was just sort of ranting a little bit on Twitter about... Uh, uh, our, my experience with GitHub has been pretty negative so far. I mean, part of it's just me, but... Yeah, they probably hate you there. No, no, no. I mean, oh. I, I think what they do is cool. <laughs> it's just I, I kind of... Sorry. I, I found it, it... We just get a lot of noise off the, the, the GitHub. So what's hosted there is the WMD editor uh, that we had to reverse engineer that Dana Robinson did pretty much all the work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, now Dana has been tied up with some other stuff for a while. So in the meantime, a bunch of people have forked off the project, which is fine. I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, but it makes it really hard to figure out like what is going on with the project. <laughs> uh, because you have Dana working, then stopping for a long, an extended period of time. Then you have a bunch of people that have sort of picked up and started doing semi-random stuff. Wait, you with, just let them check it in? Or what? What? Where? What? What do you mean? No, no, no. They so they're different forks. They have their own private forks. Well, not private. That's actually the problem, I think. So anyway, in talking to people on Twitter about this, it's like everybody that approaches WMD wants to, wants to help, wants to figure it out. They have this immediate hurdle of like, well, what's the current version? You know? And if I you see. go to the... The D. E. Robbins branch, you'll see, okay, here's D. E. Robbins. He did some work. And then you'll see a bunch of other people doing work. And you're like, well, which one of those is the good one? You know? <laughs> well, that's, and, I mean, that's just the nature of, uh, of any kind of open source project. There's supposed to be some kind of a, like a, shall we say, parent, to use a metaphor? Yes, a who, parent. Who exhibits some kind of parenthood. Yes. No, that's definitely true. And I agree with that. But I think there's also a, a, a symptom here in that part of GitHub's model is they're not free. Their pay, which again, I have no problem with. You know, I'm no problem with paying for stuff. I have no problem with this. Uh, but what the artificial distinction that they use is you cannot make stuff private unless you pay. So okay. I think this is a little bit annoying because what it means is people who are just playing around will come in, get, they'll check out WMD. Well, not check out, but whatever the correct term is, uh, pull, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they will then show up in the timeline for WMD, even if they have no intention of. Wait, they show up fixes. in the timeline even if all they're doing is pulling? If they're just reading? I, apparently. I mean, that's what I'm hearing on Twitter. I mean, I, I, that's what I'm kind of objecting to is that there's oh, all this I sort of random this? stuff in the timeline. GitHub. Where, you know, I, I don't care. WMD. Okay, so here's my thinking, and, and people correct me if I'm wrong about this because I, I am somewhat new to distributed version control, so I could be completely wrong. But what I'm thinking is, it, you know, I only want to know about your timeline if you have intent your fork, if you will, your, your pull, if you have intent to fold back in. Right? It's, not your, it's not up to the person. See, I, I mean, I think that in an open source project, it, it, it doesn't really work that way. I, but like, I, 
I, but I, I think this is all very side effecty. What I'm saying is these people are coming in with free accounts. They can't right. mark their stuff private, so therefore it always shows up in the timeline if they even touch WMD at all, which makes the timeline no, ultra. Doesn't seem right. What's your what's your what's your WMD um, what's your account on on uh, GitHub? I actually just deleted it because I wasn't using it. But the oh. the the one for uh, wait, where's the, WMD on GitHub? Where is this? Just do a Google sub. search for WMD GitHub, and you'll. Well, there's a whole bunch. There's De Robbins WMD at Master. What? Well, there's a whole bunch. This is the whole problem. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to tell you. Oh. So D Robbins is theoretically the correct one in that that's the one that we use, but there's newer ones. Okay. So this is fine. Why are there new? Who cares if there are newer ones? The this, this is a branch, though. Functionality was removed. We did not need it. There's a lot of changes going on with other people, and it's just it's confusing. I mean, this is my problem with GitHub. I think it's really confusing. This now, isn't your C sharp WMD. This is the WMD. No, this is the JavaScript. This is the client. This is the official. This is the original. Not really official. Four to a million different ways. Well, that's that's what I'm getting at. It's the whole situation is a little weird, and part of it's bad parenting. And granted, Dana hasn't been around. I haven't been around. Um, so I, I have Where actually have moved. Been? Wait a minute. What? Where have you been? Well, I just haven't had time to work on the JavaScript stuff at all. Okay. I mean, once, once, and that was back in March when Dana sort of came to a stopping point on that. I'm, I'm totally. You know what? You leave me totally confused. We're gonna have to. We're gonna. We're probably confusing our listeners too. Oh, it's it's confusing. This is what I'm getting at. Here's it's the confusing. model. Forget, Everybody... forget distributed version control or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. The model is is kind of supposed to be that there's some official project. And it has a single official place where people meet. And there's some kind of person who is a loud enough screamer to make sure that for the most part, you don't fork unless people want really, really different functionality. And people can go off and do their own projects. Uh, they'll basically, I mean, not fork, but clone the, the, uh, the central repository so that they can work on something. But then when they get something good... They're, they're supposed to kind of submit it back. They don't have to, but it'd be nice if they did to the project maintainer. And the project maintainer then looks at it and decides if they like it. And if they like it, they apply those patches to the main master version. And if it gets too hard for one project maintainer, then you might have multiple people that have commit permission that can all, um, that can all save you know, changes to the central official repository. Right, and I agree. There's a certain amount of leadership where you're, you know, constantly merging things things into the sort of the the, the official the canonical the, the official version. Trunk. Right, <clears throat> right. Now I totally I totally yeah. agree with all that, but I think <laughs> the, the pricing model is part of the problem because this artificial distinction between public and private. Um, and let me well, show you another they, example. They use the pricing model. The GitHub uses the pricing model basically as a way of providing f- free services for open source and charging commercial providers. Well. But again, people who come in and just pull W and D yeah. and just make a few changes of their own, oh, they, and they have no like intent. They're like official forks. Yeah. Well, they look like official forks because they're just forks that live in the timeline. Where that person may have no intent. They might, might maybe they just want a version for their own thing that they have no intention of it. I mean, it's great that I have access to it. I'm not complaining about that. But I'm just saying, you should be able to express intent. When you start, when you pull, express intent. Look, okay, this is something I would like you to really pull into main, or that I think this little piece is completely reusable and should go back in somewhere. I mean, I guess this is just yeah. This is just work I'm doing for fun to to mess with this thing that you have. That's mixed in in the timeline. That's kind of what I'm objecting to. Let me give you another example. So go to GitHub.com. Yeah, all right. 
GitHub.com slash mangoes. It's mangos, I think, but mangoes, M-A-N-G-O-S, slash mangoes, slash network. Mangoes, mangos.network, okay. Okay. Now you'll see this has 854 elements in the network. So 854 forks, and I'm using air quotes around the forks. These aren't really forks. Um, Because when I post on Twitter about this, it's like, how can there be 854 forks of this thing? That these people have. That's well, crazy. I think that the word you may be using the word fork to just mean that somebody has pulled a clone so that they can work on something separately. This is what I'm getting at. But, if that's, you but that, that's the way work, it works in distributed version control. Okay, but that's fine. But if you pull to work, that's fine. But there should be some way of expressing intent about what you're, what you're pulling for, right? Like major, well, you minor. No, you're, you're yeah. always, it's always just experimental garbage until, until it becomes something else. And, and none of these are – there's always – on, on almost all these things, even though it doesn't have to be, these things are not forked Okay, in the open source sense of show? I want a separate product. Out why of do I have 800? It can't even generate this graph. I, know. I mean, there's, <laughs> So why even have this? This is ridiculous. This, is, uh, this doesn't make sense. This does not make sense, the way, what's happening here. That's all I'm complaining about. And I saw a little bit of that in WMD, right? But if, if you had a larger project that a lot of people were pulling, this is the same thing you would see. You would see it at 54 members. Oh, you're of the- talking about – okay, so let me, I'm looking now at the DeRobbins WMD network, and I see there's Master, and that's what's interesting. And there's a bunch of other little uh, things that various people have pulled, and they just haven't merged back in. So that's fine. They, they may never get merged back in. This is just – this network thing is just a, a dumb thing to look at. It's just not well, interesting until well, and unless. Why is it in the UI then? Yeah, I don't if know. It's it just that, is. That's the problem. It, it's, 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 just, it's just not that interesting what all these other side people are doing. It's very clear that D.E. Robbins is the, the, what's, what's important here. And those other people, until they get their changes back up, you know, it's just like they, they just looked at the source code or they edited it or something. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. They're not, they're not forks the way that an open source user would use the word fork to mean like these people are unhappy with the way that the project is going and they have made their own private version of the project that they expect to take over the world. None of them are. Absolutely, absolutely none of them are. They would, they would change the name and make a new repository if they were going to do that. Okay. These are all things. They're not, and, 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 and the word fork is a little bit, these words get used in lots of different ways. These look like forks. And but but they're not they're really um, I, I, and I'm not sure what the word is in uh, um, uh, what what am I uh, ding 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 what the word is in, in Git but um, you you would you would say clone I think it would be the word but the idea is that they're branches and as branches the difference is that a fork you never expect to come back you have taken a fork in the road and you were never joined again and these ones they have to come back to the trunk like they have to bring their changes back into the main line of the world. We can't use any of this on the podcast because it's impossible for anybody who's listening to us to understand what the hell we're talking about. But that's okay. Well, I think this is the required programmery part of the podcast. But it's just sort of like confusing randomness. I don't think it's confusing. I mean, I think what's I'm confusing confused. is... Yeah. Well, I think GitHub is confusing. GitHub that's is what confusing. I'm getting at. So re- your reaction Eleven. of confusion is the correct reaction. That's the reaction that almost everybody who tries to interact with the WD project has. And that is the, the, the crux. Well, the root. it's sort of their fault for not understanding GitHub. Okay. Which is okay. This is, this is blaming the user a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I, see, I, I see what you're saying. But, but, but what, it, what it kind of is is that like once something, if something is put on GitHub, there's sort of an assumption that if you're going to participate, you should figure out how GitHub works. 
And that, that now, and in, the reality is that people won't. They'll just be like, okay, well, this is the first time I've ever used GitHub, but fine, I'm going to try it out. Let's see what happens. And then they start doing stuff and poking things and pushing buttons and interpreting things in various ways, never having stopped and taking three days to try to understand Git. Well, it would be nice if those people could be private for a little while while they figure the system out, right? I mean, this is, again, what I'm getting at. Is I think the pricing model is causing a little bit of the problem because yeah. it's like, okay, you're going to be public, but you're not ready to be public. You should go through some training period or some, you know, in, in the classic open source way, this is like patch submission. Okay, well, they, have, me- you know, they actually did something very nice here, actually, which is... There's a, it says right at the top, re, this is a network graph, read our blog post about how it works, because obviously nobody understands this. And then if you read the blog post, they do try to explain what it is. They, they have a nice service. I'm not complaining that their service isn't nice and, and well-formed. It's just there's something wrong about it from my perspective right now. And I'm not saying it can't be fixed. And I don't actually even know what you would need to do to fix it. But yeah. I think the most important, it's, it's a little yeah. bit of a rant. It's a little bit of a rant, but it is based on observing people trying to do things with it. You know, the, um, I mean, this is usability, basically. The most important thing to understand about these uh, distributed version control type things is um, that w- we used to think of a bunch of people sitting around contributing to a common trunk all the time, right? Because that's really what Subversion forces you to do, and that's one way of working, but what that means is that either your trunk is messed up by definition because you've committed something that doesn't work perfectly yet, or it means that you can't use version control until you've got your code working perfectly. It, it, it's th- th- Those are sort of the only two choices. If you only have a single central repository and everybody just checks in every all the work that they're doing constantly, then what's checked in is probably not working yet. Because you check in every day, and your code doesn't work every day. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah, it does. So the idea of distributed version control is to say you should be able to check in somewhere constantly. Everything you do, every step that you take, every time you think you've got something working, you should be able to check in without imposing those check-ins on anybody else. So nobody else should be bothered by them if they're not good, if they're just sort of experimental. But why wouldn't you have like a local... like? On your machine repository you do. for that, you do. Um, but then, but, but this is the. But this is again what I'm getting at. It's like on on GitHub, that stuff all becomes public. Um, well, you have it. You have it local on your the machine. You have, well, they just think that they're doing a service by showing all these people that are doing their own crap. But the idea is, you could just have it on your own machine. Um, but then you're not getting the benefit of, you know, what if you want to access it from other machines or what if you want to have your friends help you on your improvements that you're making to WMD or what if you want uh, a backup that's somewhere other than the hard drive of your laptop. And so you do, you have a repository that's living up there on the GitHub server and then, and then another repository living on your machine. And so you work on the repository on your machine, you check things in every once in a while, you push them up to the server and they sit there up on the server and then you call up, you know, whoever owns the top level um, network, of the, the top level of the network, and you say, "Yo, I've made these changes. They're in my branch. Check them out. You may right. want to. You may you may want to adapt them, adopt them for the main trunk, or you or you may may not." So there's this idea of a network where there's something at the central, which is like the 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 the, the trunk which we've always had a concept of a trunk, except that there's now there's lots of branches and the branches have sub-branches and the 
subbranches can have sub subbranches, and stuff starts out there in the leaf nodes, and it's just not important. And over time, if it's good, it migrates its way towards the trunk and eventually gets incorporated in the trunk. And if it's bad, then nobody cares. It just sort of rots or goes away, or somebody just chops off a branch and, and ignores it. Well, and, if you don't have some way of managing that, though, then you have this this timeline of eight hundred and fifty four well, nodes. You, you, you that's call that's it a what timeline, but they're calling it a network graph. So, I mean, they put they did put it on time, but all those nodes are supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to kind of look at that and say, "Oh, look, you know, so and so has just checked in some stuff that I may want to get," and it lets you kind of see, uh, you know, like a to do list of work that other people have done on their branches that you might want to bring into your branch. You know, you the more the more central trunk. I think mm. that's what they're trying to do. Um, they're they're. I don't think it ever gets this. Uh, uh, it, it never, it never. It, you, you, you're right that you do get a bunch of rubbish here, in the sense that ninety percent of these are not actually people doing anything that's going to be useful. Right. But, so what I'm saying is, have a filter to get maybe a self-imposed one, right? To, yeah. So people could then escalate. I don't know. It, it, I'm not saying the model is wrong. I'm saying the, there's something. It needs to be tweaked in the way it's presented, based on my experience. But I think this might be a good touching a touch uh, touchstone for you and your articles to reference some of the way GitHub does things, and because there is a lot of currency. When I mentioned GitHub, people were all up in arms. There was like an army. It was almost like I had mentioned I had said like Mac sucks or something. Uh, so it's got a lot of uh, traction in the community. I think so. You might want to use it as a reference point in your articles uh, on some of the concepts and stuff. Just an idea. Yeah. But that, that's all I really had to say about that. Now. Since we've bored everybody with our source control discussions, although I yeah, again, seventeen minutes of podcast to delete at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Remember the other thing, the Markdown Sharp, which is the C Sharp implementation. We talked about regexes versus state machines mm -hmm. in terms of how you process stuff. And you know, after working with that a little bit longer, I realized that one of the big advantages of of the state machine is it's, it's, a, it's a giant loop. You're mm -hmm. only making one pass over the input versus. Mm -hmm. With the regex, you're making n passes where n is a pretty big number. Oh, yeah. State machine is way faster. Yeah, but that's the nature. That's why it's faster because you're essentially doing one yep. loop. You, just over, go, you go from 1 to n where n is the end of the, the number of characters that you have. And then Sometimes you're done. you have to go backwards a little bit but not very far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the one thing I've noticed is uh, somebody contributed some code that was unrolling some of the regexes into what were basically state machines. Um, this was nice for the first, the first pass, which is like a denormalization or a normalizing pass, which gets rid of tabs to spaces. It converts new lines from, uh, you know, Windows format to, to, to Unix format and all that sort of administrative stuff you need to do on the input. That's something you but do with was, a state machine, and it's going to be like practically instantaneous. It's going to be super fast. Yeah, well, that's, that's, what, that's what I was going to mention is that uh, we were able to directly compare sort of three regexes versus one state machine pass. And one thing I'll tell you right off the bat, the state machine was way more code, way more code. I mean, you're talking like 25 lines of code. Yeah, but that, that could were be... done in the regex in like three lines. I'm just saying. Yeah. So that's the downside. It's a, it's a ton of code. Yeah, but that code is all legible. <laughs> you can I don't know. It I mean, it's debatable. I mean, it, it gets somewhat debatable. It, it was definitely faster. There's no question that it's faster because you're doing three regexes in this case to do the, the it's work. Much easier. It's, it's easier to debug, too. Uh, I don't know. The way I was seeing this code, there's actually a bug, sadly, in the normalized routine he contributed. I'm going to have to roll it back um, because it's not actually removing the new lines at the end of the code like it's supposed to. <laughs> Uh, but it, I don't know. I was a little so taken aback. Just fix that. that. 
Well, because the thing is, it's a bunch. It's like twenty-five lines of code. I have to look at and understand versus like three. <laughs> it's how, actually how quite a bit more complicated. Yeah, fine. I mean, I can give you the code if you want to look at it. It's, I mean, it, I'm sure it's not super complicated code, but it's just you know, it's twenty-five lines of code. Right. I mean, lines of code. The more lines of code, the more bugs, man. Not that regexes don't have bugs. I think regexes, for uh, for the most part, they have this all the same complexity as those lines of code that you're talking about. Like they have the same number of moving parts, and it's true that they compress them into three lines, but that's just because it's compressed. Yeah, but conceptually, a lot of what's going on is is fairly simple. I mean, in all this right. particular case, this is a simple, simple case. Now there are more complicated cases, which I think would come out in favor of the state machine. Yeah, um, it's the, the the real case is the state machine for the slightly more complicated. Uh, and I don't know, I haven't seen this code. It might not be written as well as it should have been. Yeah, but anyway, I just want I just want to mention that. Oh, and also, um, William Shields who is Stack Overflow user Cletus, has totally, you know how you drop the gauntlet of, somebody needs to rewrite this as a state machine. He has totally picked up, he's like doing all this research, he has these amazing blog entries on what he's doing. Okay. Uh, yeah, grammars and all kinds of really cool stuff. So I'll link in the show notes, but the blog is called C for Coding, and it's uh, William Shields, a.k.a. Cletus. So, but I like the way he's done it because he's blogging like extensively about every... And is he like providing code that we can use? Uh... Well, he's providing code samples. I mean, he's sort of just showing the the pieces as they go together. He's not at the end yet. He's yeah, just look, he's done some useful stuff. Like there's a there's a real um, there's a real uh, BNF syntax here for what for the for the yep yep yep. Right. It turns out there's ambiguity in the spec. Well, that's the real problem is that if you don't have a little bit of discipline of the formality of not just using like a state machine. Like if you were if 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 this stuff had used state machines to begin with. Uh, or even just had a grammar, like a context-free grammar, mm-hmm. uh, describing it, like as as William is attempting to do here, in the first place, uh, then they would have realized that the spec is amb- ambiguous. Right. Whoever came up with the spec, it was a little bit before um, Gruber, wasn't it? Wasn't weren't there primordial versions of it? No, he based it on like. Uh some of the conventions are based on other things like SE text, some other sort of yeah, yeah. simple markups. There were, there, were before, earlier, there were earlier simple markups of, of a similar philosophy similar. a little bit, but not quite not as, exactly. Yeah, no. not quite as good. But, but like just, just the act of having, which is kind of weird. I mean, did you ever see, uh, did you ever learn Pascal? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you remember the Pascal books in the back? They always had these little train tracks that showed you the whole Pascal syntax. It, it was this, I don't know what the, Formatted. It was just kind of a graphical representation of what computer scientists will recognize as Bacchus Nauer form, where there were these little yeah. tra- tracks, and you could follow the tracks, and that was that described the language. Like if I have this, then the next thing has to be one of these three things, and after that, I have to have a semicolon. Right. And you would, as long as you were following the little train tracks around, you were generating all possible uh, the language. And and if 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 you know if you're going to invent a language of any sort or a syntax for something, you gotta you gotta be able to make those because if you can't make those, you're not defining an unambiguous grammar. You're defining mm-hmm. a grammar. Either may, it may be ambiguous, it may not. You're just describing it kind of like sloppily in English, which is kind of what happened. And then you run into, it's not properly defined, and everybody makes mistakes, and there are versions. You know, and, 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 and that's how everything runs off the track, so to speak, because that's why you get like a version of an implementation that does things in a certain way, and it's kind of buggy, but it is technically appears to be allowed by the spec, which isn't really... 
doesn't really have a description for what should happen in this particular case. And, you know, one person implements it one way, and then everybody has all these texts out there written in Markdown that all assume this particular buggy Markdown processor. Now somebody else writes a Markdown processor, and they interpret it the other way, and they're all of a sudden you have two incompatible implementations. Yes. I mean, that's, that's what you get into of, of thinking like a computer scientist when you're really defining a language. Yeah. I mean, this is what I call the PHP problem. <laughs> when yeah. If you're really building a language, it really does help to have uh, yes. the hardcore computer science yes. uh, background for this reason. So, because, I mean, wh one of the things we're seeing William really struggle with here is the, the ambiguities in the spec for Markdown make it kind of a pain in the ass, frankly. Yeah. to write a formal parser for. And that's what he's running into. And he's doing a great job of documenting it, which I totally approve of. Well, I think we should. I mean, he's got enough uh, points on Stack Overflow. We could all throw all our effort behind him. If he, if he wants to write a formal uh, grammar, he wrote a piece of a grammar. But, uh, you know, if he wants to write a formal grammar uh, that um, just basically resolves his ambiguities any friggin' way he wants, it's going to be the only grammar for Markdown. And eventually people will type Markdown grammar and they're going to find it on, on Google and that's going to be what they implement off of. Well, so I think it's a fun yeah. learning exercise regardless. I mean, it's very instructive to look at. I mean, that's what Stack Overflow is about, right? So I think it's a perfect example of the... Yeah, here's a good... A, a line of hyphens could be a horizontal rule or a heading. I mean, that's a... What's the context? How do you know if a line of hyphens is a horizontal rule or a heading? Right. No, it's fun. It's fun stuff. It's great uh, to read through. I mean, that to me, the, the, the journey is its own reward kind of thing. Um, and certainly, whatever we come up with implementation-wise, we're, we're open to. Um, you said we had some listener questions. Do you want to? Oh, yeah. The old listener questions, huh? Um, let's take... Um, actually, I'm going to try to find one that says, like, a nice segue from what we're... Uh, well, it's not really related, but... Well, it's you can segue to something hey, different. Hey, Joel and Jeff. This is Dave from the Tri-State area. I'm calling with a question for you guys. I work at a large software company with a humongous code base, well in surplus to 50 million lines. And we have every language in there from Fortran to C++ to JavaScript to God knows what else. Um, and there's a heavy kind of pervasive philosophy all around the company whenever I ask for documentation. The usual answer I get is, documentation? What documentation? The source code is the documentation. I find this kind of irksome as a new guy over there, still trying to get my way around the environment. But uh, what are your thoughts on this kind of approach? Do you think it helps you to learn more about the environment you're working in or impede development or what? Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. And uh, thanks for a great podcast and a great site. Yeah. Documentation. It's exciting. Did he say documentation? <laughs> okay. This just makes me want to quit <laughs> my job as a programmer even more. <laughs> what? Having to answer the question about documentation? Just even thinking about this. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, I think... I don't know. This is the theme I come back to a lot, but I think having worked in a large company, uh, discoverability was the number one problem. Um, and I, I just feel like the more you can rely on an external code base versus an internal code base or have some sort of open source thing where uh, you're contributing as a company to some open source thing that's sort of larger than your company, I just think there's it's too difficult to attack this stuff internally, basically. I mean, the reason people mm -hmm. would resist, well, now i got to write documentation for this internal thing, you know, when I could be building this internal thing. And, you know, if you create documentation, it's only going to be visible internally. So what kind of benefit is, you know, even a large, large that doesn't company... Even, okay, come on. That doesn't even... I'm going to have to disagree with you here. 
Okay. Because it sounds like what you were about to say is, well, of course, this problem doesn't happen. You're, you're starting to become one of those open source weenies. No, 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 it's no, like, no. This, this problem doesn't happen on the Macintosh. No, no, no. That, well, that's not. Maybe let <laughs> we me, don't let me have this problem on Linux. No, no, no. no. Let on me Linux, it's awesome to write documentation because everybody reads it because there's a whole <laughs> world can read your awesome documentation. Whereas who wants to write documentation for the 50,000 Microsoft programmers to read? That's boring and lame. <laughs> Well, let me backtrack a little bit. That wasn't exactly what I was saying. What I was saying is that most large companies, <laughs> the audience for anything in a, at a typical large company is like what, like 50 people? No, because it's two and a half people who are going to be using your code or are going to be having to work on your code, and you don't know when they're coming and when they're not. But you're right. It's just a tiny number of people. But it's the same thing. That's why it's hard to get excited about it. I mean, right, when I was documenting stuff internally, I was like, okay, I'll document it for the three people that are ever going to look at this. Exactly. Ever. And by the time, and you go to this major effort to write some documentation, and three years later, you're like, all right, fine, I documented that. Three years later, the code has changed in every possible which way. In the meantime, nobody has read your documentation because they don't like to read. They'd rather watch television. They can always just ask you. And you're like, well, did you read the documentation? And you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't think that was going to be right. Maybe, okay, let's go so back documentation, to the So you're right. Documentation is an impossible, or specifically documenting code, it's just wait, an wait, impossible wait. I got problem. an idea. I got it. Wait, wait. I got a perfect idea. Yeah. I think what would have much better value in a company, uh, a large company, is unit testing. Unit testing can be a form of documentation. I oh think that's God. one of the <laughs> No? No? I mean, if you're going to sit yeah. down and say, okay, write documentation, I, I think you'll get too. much more value out of writing actual unit tests. And particularly, he's talking about large code bases. Do you remember when I referred right. to uh, unit testing as scaffolding around some grand old building? But, 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 but he, he's talking about, I mean, the problem he's talking about, I think, he said he's kind of new at the company, and he's trying to figure get his get his his mind around this fifty billion lines of code that they have. the The problem there, what he really is asking for, is like, isn't there a textbook I can read where somebody will get me all started on all this complicated code and figure out where things are and all that kind of stuff? And I don't think there is a code base in the world that has that documentation that is going to make that job easy for you of learning your way around a, a large code base. It's just hard. It's like when you're a doctor, you spend, or when you're training to become a doctor, you spend, you know, a couple of years learning like human anatomy, and that's documentation for a big, complicated system, in a sense. And you read it, and there are lots of textbooks, and lots of people teach you things. And after a couple of years of studying the documentation and studying the human body in various other ways, you finally have kind of a good grasp on how that complicated system works. And it's the same thing with with a code base, except you don't even have, you know, an anatomy textbook, the equivalent of an anatomy textbook. So it's even harder, I guess. You just need a native guide. I guess there's yeah. mentoring that would be more useful in that scenario. I, although I'm still going to go with my unit testing. I still think it would be helpful to actually just read through some of the unit tests. Plus, if he's going to be changing some of this code, that's, with that's the unit that's, tests, for, that's documentation of a very small, of a unit. Yeah. That doesn't really tell you, like, this subdirectory contains a whole bunch of files which are input to that this function in that place, which generates automatically a parser that can, can handle the whatchamacallit thingamajiggies for this gigantic module that you don't have to know about because we haven't used that code in 15 years. Mm -hmm. It's still there because we have a particular customer that is apparently using it. We're not sure. We're afraid to ask. There's no reason to delete it. So you can't read. I mean, when you have large bodies of code, if you've ever tried to take over a large body of code or, or, or just start working on a large body of code, it's like impossible. You can't. You know, it's really hard. Yeah. Well, your recommendation was so, you know, fix some tiny bug. Yes, that was my recommendation, actually. I was just going to mention that again. So I guess this is probably going to come up in every single podcast. It's like <laughs> the best way to start working on a large body of code 
is to just be assigned a whole bunch of random little bugs all over the place and just somehow figure them out. And it's, it's going to be hard, but eventually you'll just get better and better at understanding what's in the code and where, where it should be. Um, that doesn't, now I, it sounds like I'm making excuses for not documenting your work. And there are different levels of documentation. So you've got documentation in the small. So use, unit tests are awesome if you want to document a tiny little piece of, like if you had very, very detailed unit tests for markdown, your markdown parser, your, or your WMD parser, mm-hmm. um, you could you could look at them to resolve ambiguities. You'd be like, hmm, there is an ambiguity here as to whether a line of dashes is a horizontal rule or means heading one, and then you would um, you would go look for dashes <laughs> in a unit test, and you'd see if anybody had made any unit test for this purpose, and you discover that they hadn't, and you'd say, oh, well, I guess that's not documented. Well, somebody pointed out that uh, part of my cognitive friction with with the testing on Markdown Sharp was that the way I was testing was too large. Actually, doing the input-output testing Mm -hmm. was considered too large to be a true unit test. Unit tests are supposedly smaller. It's like another kind of testing. I can't remember what it was called. But uh, if you have a well-developed body of unit tests for a well-developed body of code, and the unit testers are doing a great job, and they've been studying it for 200 years, and they've, they've, they've spent a year in a cave with Robert Martin Code, uh, with, with Uncle Bob Martin, actually, side by side. Uh, what's the word? Pair programming. Mm-hmm. And they've got awesome unit tests for their body of code. Then, on, in that circumstance, wouldn't you expect that the unit tests would be about the same size as the code base, if not larger? They'd be pretty large. They might be larger than the code base. Yeah. Okay, so how does that help? Go read that other thing, which is just an alternate expression of the same code base in a different language or a different format. Well, maybe I was thinking ahead in terms of not yeah. technically reading it, but just making a change and then being able to run the unit test to make sure oh, you yeah. didn't break it. That's, that for sure is a very useful. Yeah. Look, I mean, that's, that's useful and that's valuable. But I would say, well, don't. I mean, any time spent on documentation to me is it's hard, really hard to justify. At least with unit testing, it's still somewhat hard to justify. Right. But I can see the benefit of like a new programmer doesn't know anything about your code can come in and actually make a change and have some reassurance that okay, I didn't break everything. Right? Yeah, yeah. I may have broken something small, but at least it wasn't something caught by one of the major unit tests that we have, or even you know the the whatever the kind of testing is I'm doing on Markdown Sharp. I still don't fully understand the distinction, but yeah, uh, you know input-output type testing. I don't know if there really is a good... I mean, there is definitely a feeling among programmers that there's never enough documentation of the code that they've been told to go work on, ever. And there's also uh, a a pretty clear reluctance to ever write any documentation because documentation in and of itself almost never gets written. In fact, if you look at... If you follow a team of programmers just kind of working naturally, they might document something they're about to code as a way of understanding what they're about to do. And then they'll check that in as the documentation. What they did is maybe 25% different. And that code is going to change 14 different times. And that, that piece of documentation is still going to be checked in, that wrong piece of documentation. Yes, it doesn't stay in lockstep with the code. At least the unit tests, I mean, if you break they stuff. You kind of have to, yeah. You kind of have to. I mean, that's, that's again, what we're trying to do. The unit tests don't tell, tell you enough. Or they tell you about things in the small that you could figure out by looking at the code or by reading the comment in front of the function, explaining what the function does. And I don't know, sometimes they may, they may clarify something. Yeah. Uh, and, they, and they may be useful. There's just a whole bunch of clues that you, you're going to have to get. There's some other, uh, there's some other stuff that's sometimes kind of weird. Like um, I found that if you have a database and you don't carefully document every column, that after a year or two, um, you start to have a really, really brittle world. So um, somebody will make a uh, 
whatever whatever your application is, there's some table that has the most columns and is the most central to your application. You know, it's like that, you know, the Stack Overflow question or the, you know, the user table mm -hmm. or whatever. It's got 48 different columns and it's really, really kind of kind of crucial. And and 15 of those columns are a little bit mysterious. And somebody put them in because they wanted to basically hang, hang their data onto a user or a question or whatever that they're going to use. And uh, if you don't ever document those, you just sort of throw them in there. Then what you'll find is that people will write code and it'll it'll create new users without setting appropriate defaults, and other people won't keep those columns up to date, and just stuff will break because that those columns are not well understood. Right. So maybe what you're trying to say is is document the core, the center. Uh, document the data structures at least. I think is the most crucial uh, thing. Uh, data structures and your tables and your columns and stuff like that. The most important thing is to just have you know very very tight documentation of. But start at the center. I think that's a good observation. It's like find the center and just document the crap out of that. Yeah. And the the center in terms of data structures, specifically. Yeah. That's a good idea. And you can even I mean at some point you want to have the new developers guide which you should maintain up to date. And there's something that um, uh, we've done. I don't know if we're still doing it, but um, what policy I used to have is there would be a new developer's guide that would say, here's how you get a checkout. Here's, here's how you set up the, the, the tools that you're going to be needing just to compile. And here's how to get you to the point at which you can edit any file in our source code and cause there to be a compiled version and test it and debug it under your debugger and maybe even deploy it. So like the minimum, like how the hell do I work with this code? Not even what does it do or where, where is the code or whatever. Just how do I work with this body of code in this situation? How do I check things out? What passwords do I have? What compilers do I need? What tools do I need in my path? What environment variables do I have to set? All that kind of stuff. And that, <clears throat> just like everything else, that stuff gets out of date pretty quickly and nobody maintains it. So you have a rule that the new guy has to go into, has to use that documentation to get started. And every time they find a mistake, the new guy is responsible to fix it. Oh, that's a good idea. So at least every time a new guy joins, it gets refreshed yes. to, to be up to date. I like that. Well, I think we have some good tips answering that question, but I think we have, we have some three questions yeah. that I'm excited to get but, to. But just the, the idea of documentation just makes me want to cry because it's, it really is impossible to... And, you, and when I think about writing verbosely, like the way you and I write our blog posts, where you actually try to explain everything in a way that somebody who sits down and is patient will, and reads will, will understand them, and then you see the way people have gotten to be reading on the internet, where they're just skipping forward, they're ignoring paragraphs, they're just jumping from from pretty bullet list to the next pretty bullet list. They're just they're in in Twitter mentality. They don't sit patiently and read your documentation, even if it is going to save them. They will not read it. They will just skip to you know interesting little pictures and blobs and blurbs and stuff like that on the page. You know, Joel, I didn't even listen to any of that. Yeah, because. <laughs> Because I was browsing the internet. Yeah, let's do. It. Let's move on to. <laughs> it's just it's it's pointless trying to trying to get through to people. Well, I, I think I think the point and is that's that I totally the beauty agree. of Stack Overflow. Yeah, well, you, you want to focus. You want to focus on the things that are going to actually build better stuff, and the minimum amount of effort necessary to get there. Totally agree with that. Yeah, and you have a lot of reading to do, and you just want to narrow down to the exact thing that is going to answer your exact question at this exact moment, and that's the beauty of a stack exchange, really, is that you type your question into a search box, and if it's ever been asked, it's there, and if not, somebody will answer it, and it'll be available for the next person who has that question. 
It, it just seems like a beautiful way to document your own code internally. Just start with no documentation, and then when the second person joins the team, they type their questions into a Stack Exchange, and you answer them on the Stack Exchange. Oh, wait, you've turned this into a sales pitch for Stack Exchange. That's I awesome. Have. It is, because this is, this, is the way, this is the way it's going to be done, Bobby. All right. Yeah. Robert um, has Hi, a question Jeff, for us. Joel. In an effort to drive improved task estimation in the future, the dev team I work on has tried a few times to start the habit of logging time against issues in our tracker. Unfortunately, like many New Year's resolutions, the habit quickly gets forgotten before enough useful information is collected. At the Cambridge Dev Days, my colleague asked one of the Fog Bugs guys how their team was motivated to keep such information up to date. The answer was that they were keen to test and tune their own evidence-based scheduling code. Obviously, this is a special case and doesn't transfer well to other projects. So in the spirit of getting away from six to eight weeks and towards a more engineered approach, what blend of carrot and stick do you recommend to motivate or manipulate our developers into maintaining an accurate work log? Or are we going about this all the wrong way? Thanks, Rob. That's right up your alley, Joel. Yes. Okay. How do you... What was that I was reading my email? <laughs> well, it wasn't really. I was just sort of glancing <laughs> over each one. Jumping from the <laughs> no, I think this is a good question. I mean, yes. if you're going to... If, the question if, is how do you track time? Yes. Right. Garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have enough... Correct information about how need, long it took right. to complete things, you can't ever get better data back you out. You can't get better data, exactly. Now, one of so the things we discovered... Make it happen. Well, the first thing we discovered is you don't need precise information. In other words, it doesn't have to be, you know, I spent 24 minutes on this and 76 minutes on that. It can be accurate to, you know, plus or minus like a quarter day, half day, day, those kind of things. And I've gotten the best results personally. Like the least amount of work you have to do, I think... Uh, assuming that you don't have a tool, then there are tools that will watch what you check in. And that's not a bad idea. So if you have a tool that watches what you check in, and in the check-in you designate what feature you were working on as a part of that check-in, like what bug it was for, what feature it was for, and the tool just assumes that basically all time until that check-in was spent doing that, um, you'll probably get really, really good results without any additional work. So all you have to do is remember that whenever you check things in, you have to flag them with a feature number. Uh, uh, so that's that's the easiest way. Now, um, absent that, uh, I personally have had really good luck with, at the end of the day, just going into the spreadsheet or whatever and allocating eight hours to the things that I knew that I worked on that day. So what I would do is, as the day went on, I would make a little note to myself, all right, I worked on feature 27 and feature 28 and feature 31. And at the end of the day, just sort of decide how to spread eight hours across those three features. Be like, well, this one took me the most of the time, so I'll give it six, and I'll give the other two one hour. And it's a little bit sloppy, but that's okay. Uh, you're not looking for, like, time or accuracy unless you're billing these things to clients, which is unlikely. And, uh, um, you know, almost all of the reasonable algorithms you can look at, whether it's evidence-based scheduling or something simpler, will generally withstand lack of precision and accuracy as long as you get something, you know, kind of approximately right. Because what we're really mm -hmm. trying to do is figure out, figure out those things that you thought would take one hour ended up taking four weeks. Or those things that you thought would be done in September were actually done in May. And that's what's important to learn from. Well, I'm curious about this check-in. Because yeah. that seems so painless, the whole check-in. I mean, yeah. how, uh, what kind of resolution? Is that what are we? What would they be giving up by going for that really simple route? Is that nothing. how bad is nothing? They would be giving up nothing because don't forget. Here's here's what happens. Let's say that you 
Um, uh, I, I talk about... I talk about this if you go read the documentation on evidence-based scheduling and the article that I wrote in my blog about evidence-based scheduling. But the basic assumption is, let's say that I come in in the morning at 9 a.m. and I work until 5, which is already a huge simplification of what life is really like. <laughs> but let's just say, let's take that huge right. simplification. Let's just Well, because you don't do awesome. any real work, Joel. Right. Know that. And yes. let's assume that I am a programmer. So there's a lot, a lot of simplifications here. Right. <laughs> and, and let's assume that uh, during, during the course of the day, um, I, I implement uh, in the mor- in, in the mostly in the morning until about you know a little bit after lunch. I'm implementing you know a big big old feature, and then in the afternoon I'm fixing a big old bug from yesterday's feature. Mm-hmm. So I got a big old feature and a big old bug. And uh, um, now if I record that as four hours and four hours, um, that's going to be pretty accurate. Now let's just say that from ten to ten fifteen. Uh, I had to deal with some idiotic thing. Who knows what it was? Like, like I had to reinstall my VMware workstation thingamajiggy because you know, or, or I had to deal with twenty minutes, like right before today's phone call, Skype has suddenly decided not to recognize the microphone, or whatever the situation may be. And and so you you might think to yourself, oh gosh, I wish to record that I just wasted twenty minutes on some stupid thing. As a as as separate from working on that feature that I did this morning, because it's not really right. You think at first it's not really right to take that wasted time and and charge it against a feature, and you're like that feature should have only taken two hours. But in actual, and now, um, but the correct thing to do is actually just to charge that to the feature, even though it was not related to the feature. Does really, that that's okay. That comes yes. out okay. That comes out okay because what you want is elapsed wall clock time. You don't want, you know, CPU time. You don't want to say, let, let's say that of the four hours in the morning that I spent working on that feature that I did finally finish. And oh, wait, wait, I get it. So you're really capturing just how much task switching you're doing. But you don't need to, you don't need to capture that. So you've got this four hour, you've well, got this feature that you do. It took you all morning. It took you from nine to one to do it because you spent 15 minutes writing the code and the rest of the four hours dealing with idiotic shit that happens all day long because life right, sucks. Right, right. But that's the beauty of this. I see what you're saying. That totally works. It's if, the four hours that matters, not the 15 yeah. minutes. Right, right, right. But, but that's just the way your workday goes. That's yeah. standard. Yes. So that's, that's just, it's just going to take you that long to do any 15-minute feature. Any 15-minute feature is going to take me You have hours. all these task switches that you have to do. Or whatever it is because people interrupt me and I'm responsible for the plumbing of the new espresso machine. Right, right. So the only the only advantage then to breaking it out would be is if you're trying to figure out if your if your team is doing too much task switching. You might, but you can just look. <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, you might do that one day. But what's important, really, and 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 that's the real. Well, what really happens is that the reason everything seems to take forever is that everybody says, "Well, that seems like a 15 minute feature," and then they put down 15 minutes when they know perfectly well that in real life they would maybe do it in 15 minutes and then they would surf the web for an hour and then some emergency would happen and then they'd have to reinstall their <laughs> compiler and then the phone would ring and then they would have an interview. Yeah, or Skype would stop working. And Skype would stop working, all that stuff. And so <laughs> what you want to do, what you actually want to do is measure wall clock time and that makes it much, much easier because you just say, fine, four hours because I started at nine and I finished at one and all that other junk can't be counted against other, any other features, so I'll count it against this feature. And now you've got all these 15-minute features that you estimated at 15 minutes, and they're really taking four hours, and you've started to realize that stuff takes 16 times longer than you thought, or however and long then, it really takes. 
And then the next question to, to ask, which would require a little bit more data collection, is like, how do we actually fix that? But you could probably just ask, like you said, you wouldn't even need fancy data collection tools. You would just go ask your developers, like, why did this take what four hours? Do like, well, make things stop taking. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes yeah. you know what? They're, they're, sometimes it's like totally legit that that took four hours. You're doing stuff that is going to have to get done. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it's a part of that feature. And, so, and sometimes it happens, and then, now that's the beauty of evidence-based scheduling, I think, is that sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Like sometimes you just sit down and you spend 15 minutes and you're done. And then you move on to the next feature and you don't go read Hacker News or, or the blog.stackoverflow.com or whatever it is that you might, you might have wasted time on. Right. Not blog? Well, I think that was, yeah. that was a great answer. That was right up your alley. And I, I'm encouraged that we got a nice, simple answer out of that, which was yeah. as you check in, just assume all the time since I'll the previous check-in. Check in, yeah. That's awesome. That's great. I'm 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 ready to sign up. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll put that into your version control system. Okay, here we go. How do you <laughs> choose and prioritize? Okay, this is a good question. Hey Joel and Jeff, this is Chap Ambrose Chap. in Philly. I was wondering how you guys prioritize features and functionality for your products and how do you decide what to spend your time on and what's worth doing? Um, and also what are the differences between uh, how Stack Overflow does that, and uh, Joel Fog Creek and uh, Fog Bugs and all that thing. That's a really good question. I think you should start because I think your product being way more commercial. I'm um, I'm really curious about how you guys do that. Yeah. Um, okay. We have. Uh, it's kind of weird because sometimes it just sort of feels like it's a gut gut kind of reaction. But um, in general, whenever we're about to start a major new release, uh, we get a, around the table. Uh, a bunch of people from every possible. Well, first, first, what we do is we make a list of every major item on the backlog that we're that we're even considering, and that's usually sometimes a couple of pages. And we don't spec them out at that point or anything like that. We just sort of list list them. And and you, we, we have historically with fog bugs, we usually wind up with something like a hundred things on that list that we're even considering that are you know relatively major things that we might want to do. Uh, the next thing we do is the developer team, you get a bunch of developers together, and they go through that list very, very quickly, doing what we call t-shirt sizing, where for each feature you say, tiny, small, medium, large, extra large, extra, extra large, extra, 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 extra you know. You can put in a lot of X's. <laughs> you can fashion. More X's the better. I like More it. Z's as well. Yes. I, I use a scientific notation for the size of, of my t-shirt. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, so, um, so the, the, um, and then we, we we roughly translate those into you know one day, one week, one month, three months, six months, that kind of thing. And, and it doesn't have to be accurate at this point um, because this is not estimating. This is just deciding. You know, we can either do this or five of these things, and it only has to be very very approximate at this point. Um, so we come up with a cost for each of these features in in time, and then. Wait, can I can I interrupt real quick? Oh, yeah. I found that we we do internally do t-shirt sizing, and sometimes I find that we're radically off. But like, are you ever off by like um like sometimes we're I would say an order of magnitude off. No, it's okay to be an order of magnitude off as long as things are relatively accurate. Like so, for okay. example, you never say this is extra large and that's extra tiny. All right, so the extra tiny might actually have been kind of large, but the extra large thing would be like monumental. <laughs> In that case, you know what I mean? Like, you do definitely know this would be a major renovation of these four things, and that's just a quick little one-off, possibly only three lines of code. Okay. I don't want, I don't want to inter interrupt, so please proceed. So you get these little costs for things that are very approximate. And then what we do is uh, we get a team of people to sit around a table 
with representatives from basically every branch of government. So we have salespeople, marketing um, developers, testers, program managers, executive management, pretty much like we try to get everybody involved at that point. And Mm -hmm. we try to have representatives from everyone involved. And um, we give them all uh, a a certain number of dollars to buy features. And they have to, and and there's a price for each feature. So the the really large features might be, you know, 50 cents and the really small features might be a dime and the tiny features might be a penny and they get 250 to spend any way they they want. Uh, or you can give them a dollar, it's simpler. And you make the really large features, you know, 50 cents and the smaller features, 25 cents. And then everybody basically has to go through this list of features and, and purchase their own selection of what, what they want to purchase with their, with their dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you add up how much money was spent on each feature and you divide it by the cost. How so, many people are involved in this process? Uh, maybe a, depends on how big your company or your team is, but we've but done in this your with, case. Yeah, we've done it with, with there was a version of Hogwarts. We did this with nine or 10 people, I think. Wow. Um, again, both both of these exercises of the T-shirt sizing and then the, the, the paying for features um, are like afternoon exercises. It's not like... Well, but you guys are cheating a little bit because you guys use fog bugs internally. I mean, what if you were doing this for a product that you didn't even really use? Ah. <laughs> I mean, that would be tougher, right? You'd have to have like actual users come in and have them do this, right? Mm, no, because your salespeople know what people are asking for. Okay, so the so salespeople. The, wow, we're putting the salespeople in charge of stuff? Now, that's scary. Well, because the salespeople definitely, yeah, I mean, they have their things that they know that when they're trying to sell something, they keep getting question A, B, and C, and that's why they can't get their commission and make the sale, and they're going to spend all their money on features A, B, and C. <laughs> and the programmers, all they ever want to do is rewrite the whole thing in Python or Ruby or something, which is no benefit to anybody whatsoever, but makes them happy. So they're going to spend their money on it. So that's why you want a selection of different people with different different attitudes, you know. Sure. To, to pay for things. Um, so uh, anyway, what, what you wind up with then is you take each feature and its cost and you divide it by uh, how much has been spent on it. And you try to see which things got the most funding. So you might have something that only costs a dollar, but it got $3 worth of funding because everybody wants it so much. And mm-hmm. you may have something else which costs, only costs a dime, but it got zero funding because nobody thought it was important. And so you sort by that and you get these things kind of at the bottom of the list. And now you have a prioritized sort order. Of, 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 of things that you want to do, and then you just sort of bite off some amount of time, and you do as much stuff as you have time for in, in that order of priority. Well, I think, I think that, I mean, that's, I, I think I've written about that before. I mean, that, that, that's a fun, kind of a fun planning exercise, too, to have money to spend on features. It's kind of, it's, it works great for, you know, for getting from version 3 to version 4, right? It's good to have some customers at that point already. Uh, this, I'm this a little uncomfortable that the sales people are representing... The salespeople are representing the customers there makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Well, you've also got a program manager who's supposed to be responsible for your user interface and stuff like that. You've got executives. People care about making a good product for their customers. You, you hopefully have some people there, representative, whose job it is to understand what it is that the customers are trying to do and what it is they, they want. Now, there's a much – there. Th- 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 like I said, this is a great way to go from version 3 to version 4. You already have some customers. The salespeople are already talking to them. You, you're just looking for your next round of features. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things that just doesn't work so well for. It doesn't work very well for, for, you know, for your product zero, your very first or your 1.0 version of your product, where you're doing a very different activity, different activity altogether of trying to figure out what to build and whether anybody's going to want it. And um, it's also important to just sort of be a little bit intelligent about the vision of, of this product. And you have to kind of – sometimes you may want to do a feature 
it's not the most important feature, but you're going to do it because there's a certain constituency that's not benefiting from the other features that you are doing. So you might look at all the features that you've done and discover that you've just done a whole bunch of features. I don't know, maybe you've implemented an API and now you're shipping version 6.0 of your major product and the only advantage it has is an API. And a lot of your customers will look at that and they'll say, okay, I'm not planning to use the API, so are there any other new features? And you'll have to say no and they'll be like, well, thanks. That's useless. So sometimes it's, it's beneficial to try to, you know, try to try to make, especially if you're, if, if, if for whatever reason, if you're sh selling shrink wrap software where you deliver, you know, once a year or once every year and a half, and they're not going to get anything for a long time as opposed to on the web software where you're constantly drib dribbling things out to them, you, you may want to make sure that everybody from every constituency gets something cool. Yeah. Now, now question though, how do you balance sort of the raw, and this is something we've just sort of now sort of dipped our feet into with Stack Overflow. It's like balancing development on features that are going to bring you money yeah. <laughs> versus yeah. the features that you th you would... You I mean, wish you had, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of like different things sometimes. Yeah, well, you, you may have two, two audiences, and this happens in all the ad-supported businesses in the world, you know, all those ad-supported websites where you're cons you've got your one constituency, which is your consumers who are not paying you anything, and you just have to make them happy so they keep coming back. And then you've got the constitu constituency, which is the advertisers who are actually paying for the whole operation. You have to make them happy. Well, I, I mean specific to you guys, though, because, again, you guys oh. use fog bugs, right? And you know, I mean, granted, it's kind of a mature product at this point. It's been out for how, like 10 years? But we dog food the, the heck out of it, so. Right, right, but certainly well. there's sort of pet features that you guys want, I guess even now still, right? That yeah. maybe customers aren't so hot on. Yeah, that doesn't really, ha uh, well, it, 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 it's... I guess or, we're in the enviable position of, 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 of using our own product extensively, which not many developers are. And you know what? Those, those features that we want that our customers don't want, they just never get implemented. It drives me batty. Really? Yeah. Wow. There's stuff that I would love to have, and I just go in there and I'm like, can I please have just a little da-da-da-da-da, and it just never makes it high enough in the priority list. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Um yeah, so how do you decide what, with Stack Overflow? It's your turn now. T tell us about Stack Overflow. Right. So, uh, again, I, like you guys, we're in the env enviable position where, I mean, I was designing something for me, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, I mean, you and I, uh, for us, we, we, we saw that there was this limitation with the information that was on the Internet, and we thought there was sort of a, a way to build a better mousetrap to get the better information to, to rise to the top mm -hmm. so that we don't mm -hmm. spend so much time on these sort of painful n to navigate PHP message boards and, you know, to, to surface the information. So I think in a way we're kind of cheating maybe even more than you guys are because we don't even have, when I say you guys, I mean with, with uh, fog bugs in that uh, nobody's really directly paying us. Uh, the, the only thing that makes it worthwhile and valuable is that it actually works and that the good information goes to the top and then it's this virtuous cycle of because it's working, people want to use it, and because it's because a lot of people are using it, that you know brings in advertising dollars and yeah. Well, we are getting paid by the advertisers and the careers seekers and stuff like that. So, there are so I think us. in a way, this is very directly built by the community, and it's it's actually something I wanted to to talk to you about is because I felt like it was weird with us. It's like we have this membrane between us and the community, and, and it's kind of a permeable membrane where we're actively trying to make it better for the community. Not We don't do every single thing that people want, because that's ridiculous, but we do really try to drive a lot of the, the features that we implement based on, remember I used to use user voice, mm -hmm. we would take the top voted things, and we would really try to knock those out and get those implemented. Uh, and we do the same thing on Meta, where we, I mean, I'm constantly looking at the, you know, the top 10 or top 20 
mm-hmm. uh, feature requests and bugs that, that haven't been fixed or haven't been implemented and thinking about ways we can actually do that. And to me, that's the membrane where we're really community-driven because the community is what makes Stack Overflow interesting. Without no, just that, for the, for the sake dead. of, yeah, for the sake of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, argument. <laughs> uh, let me play devil's advocate here. I mean, usually that's how you get, I mean, that sounds like an, a particularly bad version of design by committee. Doesn't it, like, on the service? Well, it does, like, but I, I, I like still have a Like, you never get an iPhone by asking cell phone users what they want. That's how you get Windows Mobile, is you just sit there adding features and adding features and adding features and adding features and adding features. And at any given time, you take the top ten features that people want, and you're working on them. And you're never going to get a phone that has one button on the front screen, and that's it. Well, I, I have to clarify. I mean, I, I'm not really... Giving, I'm giving sort of the candy-coated version of the picture, which is we have a we, and by we I mean sort of you and me and yeah. the core team have very specific ideas about how we want things to work. Sure, <laughs> and I'm not really too shy about decline. I mean, you remember when we had uh, Richard from User Voice on? He said we were the only User Voice that had like 50% declines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding you because I would be like, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, because I was like, I don't see any way of us doing this. I, that doesn't, you know, I just don't agree with that philosophy. So I'm gonna go ahead and decline it. I'm not gonna leave you in limbo. It's like, oh, maybe we'll get to that. It's like that's such BS, right? You have I don't to smack the trouble people is, we, down. We don't. We you can get away with that because these people are not paying. The people that are asking for the features are not paying us. Well, that's right. That's right. That's that's where you have the freedom because. So when you actually have paying customers, they get really huffy about their rights too. It sort of reminds me of the uh, the the. the the big debate between a restaurant, between the restaurateur about uh, substitutions. So, like, um, like the, the 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 famous chefs will make a turkey sandwich with aioli, which is a fancy word for may- mayonnaise, and then the uh, society ladies who um, only can can only eat two hundred calories a day will ask for a turkey sandwich without the aioli on it, and the chef will get all upset because it doesn't taste good. It's dry and uh, inedible without aioli on mm-hmm. it or mayonnaise, so to speak. So they'll make a rule saying, look, no substitutions. I'm the friggin' chef. I have designed this menu to be tasty. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. Well, that's right. And, and although we don't explicitly tell people to go somewhere else, it's like there's a lot of vehicles on the Internet. Right, mm-hmm. and a lot of them can get you to a destination. And we're building a particular type of vehicle. And I do really get frustrated with people who come and they go, mm, "You know what?" They'll go to Meta and like, mm, "You know what you should really do? You should do friends list. Yeah. We should have a list of our friends that <laughs> right, we can right, store right, on right. Stack Overflow." I'm yeah. like, "No, no, no." I'm like, "You want us That's to build a truck?" Thing. Yeah. You're like, "Okay, you have a vehicle. Why don't you just turn it into a truck?" And I'm like, "Well, look, this is I don't know. I don't know what this is actually. I want to say sports car. It's not actually a sports car. We have a sports car. If we turn it into a truck, that completely ruins." The, the sports car, yes. It'll still get you to your destination, but it's a truck, right? It's not going to win any races anymore. I philosophically object to us building a truck because I didn't sign up for a truck. I signed up for this thing that I believe in, and a lot of other people believe in it too, right? And you're, you're, you're sort of forming a community around people who get it. Like mm-hmm. they, they see the core vision. And the people and, that don't, and, yeah. And they're sort of pulling. So when you said, you there know. Was that, there was a huge debate over the people that wanted the ability to use tags as a personal way that, for messages to come to their attention. Well, that was just wrong on so yeah. many levels. But uh, that's a good example of somebody coming in and saying, I want to build. That's not even a truck. That's like, I don't even know what that is. That's like. Well, no, that, I mean, they, they, that, was, that was a truck. They, like, they utterly and literally just wanted something different than what we wanted to provide. And they just could not believe that we did not want to make a product. That 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 did something that was different, and and they were just so 
almost offended <laughs> that we would not make a product on the internet that did exactly what they wanted the way they wanted it, which is not what we were trying to do. So, so when I said it's a permeable membrane, uh, what I meant was the people who sort of see have a, sh- a reasonably shared vision with you will pull you slightly in different directions, not radically mm-hmm. to the point that you're building like a crappy service, but they'll pull it in sort of just massaging ways, like small directional ways. Um, and a lot of them are just things that I hadn't thought of. And, I, and I've told you this before, and I still agree with this. Of all the feedback you get, most of it's not going to be very good, uh, but about 10% of it you'll find is really, really good. It's stuff that makes sense, that, that actually they see the vision, and, and, and it's just stuff you didn't have time to think about for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a matter of having the time to filter through all the stuff that comes through junk. the membrane yeah. and actually get that 10% that's really solid like gems of ideas. And that's the stuff that we really focus on, uh, sort of like the top 10% of all yep. the requests that come in. And uh, we do wait a little bit. If a lot of people are asking for it, although I've declined stuff that people have, you know, that's gotten really highly upvoted. So there's a certain amount of dictatorial vision that goes into this. Um, hopefully not too much, but it's, it's a balancing act. So it, it's not entirely consumer-driven like you were saying where it's just, you know, you're building by committee. I don't think that's entirely accurate. All right. Good question. If you have any questions... For the Stack Overflow podcast, we've gone more than an hour, right? We can stop. Yeah. yeah. Hour and five. Yeah, we're going to have to delete 17 minutes of GitHub bashing at the beginning. Uh, if you have any questions for us, email uh, mp3 or agwarbis file to podcast at stackoverflow.com or call the podcast hotline at 646-826-3879. There's a Stack Overflow wiki, Stack Overflow podcast wiki, wherein people transcribe the things that we're saying in this very podcast for the benefits of humanity and that will be linked to from the show notes where you can also find links hyperlinks to all the things that we mentioned in the show and that all takes place on the blog at blog.stackoflow.com that's right are we still doing t-shirts for people who ask questions no oh is that over that was a limited that was a limited time special offer we got piles of questions now okay but uh but if you do want a t-shirt you can make one up or (laughs) Hey, you're doing. You're making T-shirts, aren't you? Stack Overflow. We are t-shirts. making T-shirts. We are making T-shirts. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, maybe you can do T-shirts for people who ask questions. But I in the could. meantime, if you have questions, it's entirely out of the goodness of your heart <laughs> that you email the MP3 or Ogborbus file to podcast at Stack Overflow. That's all for today. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.